A quick warning, this podcast includes allegations of child sexual abuse, so listener discretion is advised. If any of the details are triggering, please talk to someone. If you're in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737 to speak with a trained professional. You know, you don't stop and suddenly become a member of the prison system. Same thing applies though when you get out of prison, you don't stop being a prisoner. Peter Ellis served nearly seven years in prison for the abuse of children at the Christchurch Civic Crèche. You wake up at the times that you were woken up at, you eat meals at stupid times, at half past, I mean, you were fed in the prison system at times when you weren't really hungry. In a cosy cafe in Amberley in North Canterbury, Peter picks at some Wildbury fudge as he recalls the last few decades of his life. I've been basically in the passenger seat for, for this 27 years ride, and as I said, it doesn't really matter what goes on. As I said, I've just gone where the car's got driven. He's changed a lot from the flamboyant 34-year-old first accused of those horrific crimes. He's now clearly affected by the cancer that's ravaging his body and by this case which has shaped his life. And he's not the only one. Well, basically, the entire abuse has not just changed the children's lives, it's changed the parents' lives. This is Wendy Ball. You'll remember her as a friend to a number of families involved in the case. Here she is talking to RNZ's Checkpoint programme in 1994. Where they thought they were going to have to deal with the normal childhood maladies and problems and even adolescence, they're now looking to a future that has a myriad of huge problems for them. Some parents have had to give up their careers so that they can be at home full-time with their children. And then there were the other teachers caught up in the case, like Debbie Gillespie. The personal consequences that I think many people don't realise, I, I think, I don't think people understand how traumatic it was and can still be. I mean, it left me without a career. It's left me still feeling like I could be vulnerable to any accusation that anybody wants to make, which is why I won't work with kids again. Um, I had quite a number of years being unemployed and I had problems with depression and anxiety and I still get really anxious took away a brilliant crash. It effectively threw a huge stone in the middle of a pond. And that ripple didn't just stop at the civic crash. In a TV3 interview in 2000, just after his release from prison, Peter Ellis noted how this case, which changed his life, also changed the lives of people all over the country. It stopped grandfathers from, from picking up their first grandchild because they're a bit worried. It stops uncles from, from, from going and picking up their nephews and nieces from, from, from playgroups. And it stops the fathers of New Zealand participating fully with their children. And our teachers, our teachers in, in early childhood, our male teachers uh, and, and those in, in primary school, they, they don't want to be it. We're, we're losing those. And 30 years later, this case continues to cause ripples. There have been two appeals, three requests for pardon, a ministerial inquiry and a select committee inquiry. 
And through each of those occasions, the events of the case are recalled, revisited by everyone who was there. And every time, the convictions against Peter Ellis have been upheld. This is something the families of the complainants, though most wouldn't speak to us for the podcast, really wanted you to remember. As we began making this podcast, a last-ditch effort to clear Peter Ellis's name was underway. Afternoon, Rob. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. How are you? Fine, thanks. I was there, in the room when Stephen Ferguson called Rob Harrison to see if he could take on the case one more time. So so from your perspective, Rob, um, why would you say yes to taking this case on? I was his counsel. Uh, I carry the I carry the weight of being convinced of a man's innocence, but having failed to convince a jury that he should not have been convicted. So, uh, so there's a bit, there's a bit of skin in the game for me, if you like. Can you actually lay your hand on your heart and actually, if you are looking me in the eye, say that you've got the capacity? To, to move into this? Right. I've always maintained that the methodology and the, so the, the core evidence itself uh, was substandard. If that's where we're heading with it, then I have the time and the capacity to file this very quickly. Nearly 30 years after the original trial, lawyer Rob Harrison was back on the case and Peter Ellis was granted permission for one last fight. Good evening. In the last hour, Peter Ellis has been granted leave to take his battle to clear his name to the Supreme Court. The now 61-year-old who is suffering from bladder cancer has been given just months to live and wants to clear his name before he dies. A race against time, a final hearing that could end up changing New Zealand's legal landscape. This is the final episode of Conviction, we take one last look at how this decade-long legal saga has impacted those closest to it. I'm Ali Jones. And I'm Alexander Beza. This is episode 12, Legacy. I just feel that this has gone on too long and it should be sorted out once and for all the man is innocent. This has really changed my stomach and it changed my stomach for the victims. Not being believed is very difficult and I lean on the fact that the courts have believed me. I found out I was probably a lot stronger than I, than, than I ever thought I was. And perhaps I grew up a little bit, I don't know. In 1994, when Peter went to prison, pages and scrunchies were all the rage. CDs were beginning to outsell cassette tapes. Text messaging was beginning to take off, but you could only message people on the same network. But by the time Peter was released in 2000, you could text anyone. So much change. You can imagine that re-entering society after a reasonably long time in prison wouldn't be particularly easy. Just picking up life is a big adjustment. Stephen Ferguson, the prison chaplain, remained friends with Peter Ellis after he was released from jail. And not only are you getting out of prison and re-engaging in life and where you can go and can't go and be accepted and just making way, but you're actually, your, your profile and um, you're having to deal with, with it, that too. And Peter, that was a big thing for Peter. 
would you agree that he kind of stayed under the radar after he came back and to himself? Yeah, yeah. For years, he didn't have a computer or a, or a, a, a smartphone lest he be charged with looking um, at inappropriate and, and being set up. I mean, it was only lastly that he had a smartphone, just how he wanted to protect himself and not to cause people to take a pot shot at him. When I met Peter, he didn't seem to dwell too much on any unhappiness he might have had, whether we were discussing the investigation, his time in prison or his life afterwards. Most of his stories were about the absurd or entertaining things he noticed. Alice was much more open, more unguarded with Stephen. There was some very, very dark times and there was times when, when Peter was very fragile and sometimes you would see it expressed in his artwork. I've received calls where Peter needed to talk at two and three in the morning, 11 o'clock at night. And often he would just play a song, a country and western song, usually a very emotional type of song. I can't think of some of the songs he, he played, but it was just him expressing the deep hopelessness of, of the of, of the appeal system and and what had happened to him in life. And so the dark days didn't finish in prison. There was many dark days that other people may not know, but they were there. I did always wonder why Alice never left Christchurch for a new life, may Auckland or somewhere else, where nobody would know him. Yeah, so you sort of think to yourself, you got to push on, and you think, you know, whereas sometimes you think, oh, what if I got off the... You know, what if I just said, oh, I can't be bothered, you know, 15 years ago, just, just get on with my life. And uh, it's not as I would say, I mean, anywhere I go, I've, I've never, never yet had anyone you know, have a go. Um, I have arrived in Christchurch and found myself sort of crossing a road and re realising I'm being looked at by people all over the place and I get to, well, in this particular case, it was Mary Malcolm Cox's, and they said there'd been a rerun of Mel Reid's interview with, with, with Colin Eade on 2020. Oh, I said, that might explain that then while I was being looked at. But no, no open hostility from anyone. Instead, Peter just stayed within the small seaside community of Leithfield Beach, where his mum and sister lived too. Coming to the beach, um, as I said, mum, mum arrived and said I was here. Uh, I had a woman who she had a child on her back of about eight months, I suppose. I said, and she said, oh, there's been a meeting about you up the road at the school. I said, uh, said, uh, said, you're welcome at the beach. There's about three people that were a bit antsy. One is no longer here at the beach, one is dead, and the other ones have all changed their mind and are extremely supportive and helpful. So, yeah, that's been one of the better things coming for me. Richard Lewis was Peter Ellis's parole officer. I was a probation officer in Christchurch in 
1999 I moved here. Yeah, and I was, I was allocated his case for him to be released on parole. It was Rick's job to ensure that Alice not only stuck to the conditions of his release, but also integrated back into the community smoothly. The very first time I met him, he asked me if I had children of my own. And, you know, having worked with a lot of sex offenders, I think there's, there's an unwritten rule that that's just, that crosses a boundary, really, between the personal and professional. You just wouldn't ask your probation officer if they've got children. Um, but, but he did, and, and he thought nothing of it. And I think that was just, that's just his way. Peter was known to push boundaries, and Rick saw that straight away. I knew nothing about him. If anything, I got the sense that he was a little bit offended that I knew nothing about him when I met him. Um, but as far as I was concerned, he was a file. He was just another child sex offender on parole. And that's how I treated him. It's just, it's just a case of managing the risks, really, as far as a probation officer is concerned. So knowing what he'd been convicted of, knowing he was, well, if not a rule breaker, then a rule bender, I had to know if Rick thought Peter Ellis could be innocent. Yeah, well, I do have an opinion. Um, but it comes with a caveat, I guess, that I wasn't in court and I didn't hear the evidence. So any opinion I have is really only based on knowing Peter for a year knowing what I know about sex offenders and the risks that, that they pose to the community and, and knowing something of the allegations and the, and, and the context of the time in which he was convicted. Um, I gradually, very gradually, came around to thinking that it, was, it seemed highly unlikely that uh, he was guilty of those offences. What made you think that he might have not done it? Well, it, the, and that's a difficult question. There's a whole range of factors and risk factors that you would take into account when, you, when you're assessing a sex offender. Anyone who committed that kind of abuse would have to have some issues around sexual preoccupation in relation to children. Um, they'd have to be manipulative and devious and difficult. There'd be various signs that you'd pick up on, but none of them were apparent during the year that I knew him. Um, if you think about things like, you know, having an antisocial personality disorder or sexual preoccupation or a criminal history that would suggest that he would do this kind of thing, or even any of the other risk factors that, were, that might be relevant to him, such as using alcohol and drugs, mixing with wrong people, uh, you know, taking risks sexually, being promiscuous, that kind of thing. Um, there was no evidence of lying and manipulation, the kind of manipulation that you would normally find with convicted child sex offenders. What, what you often find is that they will show one kind of face to the world which um, is not real. Um, Peter was just consistently himself, as far as I could tell. He could see how some people might be concerned, while others thought he was brilliant with kids. If you kind of take the image of, of, of Peter Ellis as an abuser out of your mind and just see him as, a, as an ordinary guy around kids, yeah, he'd be very popular indeed. He'd be funny, he'd make them laugh, he'd do outrageous things. It, you know, it'd be naughty and they like that kind of stuff. If you layer on the possibility of him being an abuser, then it becomes something much more sinister. 
Sarah Crane, the psychotherapist who counselled some of the complainant families, is of the opinion that sometimes spotting child sex offenders isn't particularly clear-cut. Apart from the occasional person I've worked with, I don't think that on the whole sexual offenders ever really own up. I mean, it's not typical behaviour. Usually they absolutely claim their innocence in very, very convincing ways. I mean, I'm remembering a family I worked with a long time ago at start where the grandfather had abused all the grandchildren. I mean, quite sort of consecutively over the years and no one had ever known or said anything he was just the most delightful grandfather and then the youngest child became the whistleblower yeah it was completely convincing he totally convinced me after the parole was over rick never saw ellis again no i i i never have um uh Sadly, not my place to. I mean, if Peter had ever wanted to contact me, then he could have done, but but he, he never chose to, and that's fine. But he was hopeful Peter's case would be reviewed again. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about his illness. Um, I hope that... I hope that at least the evidence is heard properly in his case. I mean, 30 years is a long time. It's... Um, I, I think it's definitely time to, to look at it again, if only to, you know, ensure that, you know, this, if there has been a miscarriage of justice, that it doesn't happen again in, in the same way. Um, I, I, I worry a little bit for the, for the witnesses and for the parents of the witnesses and the people who, uh, I assume, you know, genuinely believed that, there'd been some terrible offences committed and for whom it's, this, this will still be very real. That last sentiment, that this is still very real for the complainants and their families, is foremost in Sarah Crane's mind too. There were about three families that I saw on and off for a considerable length of time and with two of those families I saw two children from different families when they were adolescents again. And recently I saw one of the mothers who needed some support with the, you know, the whole case coming up again. She wasn't coping well. And people are still trying to convince each other either, you know, he was guilty or he wasn't. And I think that's very sad because I think no one is ever, you know, completely bad and completely vilifying paedophiles, you know, to me is a waste of time because usually their journey started in their own childhood and I think we just have to be compassionate. In an interview with the Dominion Post reporter Lindley Boniface in 2003, Carrie said that for a long time she used to vomit whenever she talked about Peter Ellis and that she saw Ellis in a shop years later and felt sick all over again. And Carrie's parents said they definitely thought about leaving New Zealand. The crash father, who did leave Christchurch, told Boniface the best advice he had received was to erase the name of the crash from his son's school records altogether. In the same article, Bart said it was his supportive family that helped him feel safe again. He and Carrie have been as consistent with their stories as Peter has been with his. Bart told Boniface... We were there... We know it happened. It's not easy to live with, but I could live with it if everyone didn't keep bringing it up all the time. 
If someone had told me when I was six that everything I said would end up all over the papers ten years later, I wouldn't have wanted to testify. I feel like my trust has been betrayed. I would have been happy to never talk about the abuse ever again. I want to forget it. I've often thought, statistically, out of the 100 plus children that were interviewed, there was probably a good chance that one or more had been sexually abused. And while Peter was adamant nothing had happened at the crash... Because there was no abuse of children at the civic crash. That doesn't mean children weren't abused elsewhere by people not involved in the crash. We sat through six or seven of the young girls' tapes and they ranged up from anything like 20 minutes to an hour or just over an hour. Press supervisor Gay Davidson has concerns about the testimony from one young girl. And when she finally sat down, then they interviewed the brother and then they got her back in and the interview was maybe 10 minutes long. And the difference between the two kinds of interviews was, in all the ones where she was being interviewed about the childcare centre, she just couldn't be bothered. She was playing around, she just didn't want to really sit down and engage. She was, but she was all over the place. And she, But when she spoke in that very last interview about the uncle, she just sat there and didn't move. And it was just like night and day, really, when you look at the different um, film of her. The charges relating to this girl were discharged at the High Court trial, so Peter wasn't found guilty of any offences against her. But Gay seemed to think the police and the girl's family were so focused on Peter Ellis and the creche, they weren't willing to look closer to home. They said they didn't want to make her a multi-abused victim, is that the right terminology? Um, And the family didn't want to take it any further in terms of... um, having the uncle arrested on the charges and they just wanted to concentrate on on what they were going through with the civic um, and not going further. And so in doing that, in my mind, they let the the real perpetrator completely off scot-free to carry on doing it with other people, to other children. But, But that was a choice that they have to live with, I suppose. I think I know the child that you are referring to and I would categorically say that she was displaying all of the symptoms of abuse. I spoke to Paula about this. There was definitely something happening for that child. What signs would those signs of abuse have been that you kind of observed? I observed sort of a lot of um, sort of rocking and thumb sucking and just a child that was quite withdrawn, you know, just very self-protecting. Now in my professional capacity now, I would say a child that's showing signs of being emotionally distressed. Was it ever kind of voice back in the day to senior management or to the mother? I, or? Um. No, back then, the it was a very early movement, the becoming aware of sort of sexual abuse as a professional. That, that movement was very young. So I think if a child disclosed to you, you told them you believed them. And then from that point, you moved forward. But the child never, ever disclosed uh, abuse. And what would one do now if you'd see that in a child? So now the your sort of best practice and professional guidance is that 
if for any reason you suspect abuse, then there is a mandatory reporting. The first time I met Pete Ellis was in that noisy cafe in Amberley. We spoke about the child who recanted. Peter said he'd written to her. I said basically it's not nothing to do with you, it's not your fault. Much later, going through a box of Peter's things, I found that letter he had written. But it was clear he had never sent it. So I scanned and emailed the girl's mother a copy. I still have the original, and I'd like to share some highlights. Here's how it starts. I had thought of starting with, Dear Sausage, but as you are 28, perhaps not appropriate. However, I hope it gives you a small smile. Where to begin such a letter? I have no anger or hold you responsible for what happened. You were a child. You've shown that courage over and over again with your continued conviction to stand by what you know is right. A worldwide event overtook us. I am sorry that you have taken to heart so much. You were a child and this event should never have been allowed to happen. I'm proud of you. You clearly have the courage and independence to continue to be a wonderful young woman. One day I hope you will find a partner, a husband, and have children and be an inspiration to them as you have been to me. Kind thoughts always, Peter. Although they did not want to take part in this podcast, the mother did email. She wrote, Cura Alex, it was very powerful. Peter was a good and honourable man. We'll be in touch. Such a lot to process. The girl who recanted isn't the only person to offer Peter an apology years after the events. There was a phone call to Chris Lynch. It was on Talkback. And it was Carol Evans, who was Christchurch's counsellor, crying and said that she has nightmares about me. It's always been a nightmare to me. And I think it's the one time on my council career that has a plot where you feel, why didn't you speak up? Why didn't you say something? The call came in to Chris Lynch on his talkback show. It was April 22nd, 2015, the day Peter Ellis's request for a ministerial inquiry was rejected by the then Justice Minister, Amy Adams. I did serve as a city councillor and at times I was the city council rep on the crash committee. And I believe that, um, I just believed he was innocent all the time. Um, I met him, I knew him, um, I've seen him in action. He was flamboyant, he was colourful, but um, I always believed he was innocent. But when we were councillors, we were told that we were not to have an opinion either one way or the other. We were to um, allow the law to take its course. It's always been a nightmare to me. Um, and I think it's the one time on my council career that has a plot where you feel, why didn't you speak up? Why didn't you say something? Why did you not speak out then? Because we were told not to. I mean, when CEOs tell you to do something in those days when I guess councillors did what they were told, um, and you, you still question yourself, well, am I right? I couldn't actually honestly say... I'm, I'm right, when everything else was saying that my views were wrong. Mm. I just felt if I don't ring now, I'm going to wear this guilt for the rest of my life. What would you say to Peter Ellis? If he's listening then, Carol, what would you say to him today? I guess I'd say that I'm sorry on behalf of the city. But, you know, it's a pity that some of us didn't speak up. 
but uh, I'm just I just have always felt sorry every time it, it raises its head and I guess the more you look at the case it was just pure panic pure conjecture and people consolidated themselves one way or the other into two groups those who believed and those who didn't I don't think people understand how traumatic it was and can still be. I mean, like Debbie Gillespie was one of the four female teachers who were charged but didn't end up in court after the charges were dropped. When I was unemployed and that sort of, what am I going to do with myself, I, I thought I'll, I wanted to join a yoga class because I thought that would be a good healthy thing to do. And it was at the Women's Centre and I got a phone call from somebody there saying um, I couldn't go after I put my enrolment in. And I said, why not? And she said, um, because there are people here that won't, don't feel comfortable having you in the class. And for 30 years, Debbie has felt unable to do anything about her situation. I remember somebody saying to me that theoretically the system worked. I didn't go through a trial and I wasn't convicted. It's not like, you know, being exonerated because someone got it wrong, the jury got it wrong or whatever. We just kind of dropped out of the system. And I, to be honest, I've never had... I've just not been able to cope with going down that route of this is not fair, I should get compensation because the amount of work involved in that, I just couldn't handle it. Three decades later, Gay Davidson too wishes for one thing. We all need to have our names cleared and our reputations such as we had back then back. Um, I want it back. I mean, it doesn't dictate my life as much as it used to, but I still want my name cleared. And all the other people infected and even the ones that went arrested, their names have been smirched by just about working at the Civic Childcare Centre. They've got every right to have it cleared. That's Paula's experience as well. She lost her job when the creche was shut down. We were made redundant. It took me six years to get back into teaching in early childhood. My daughter, eldest daughter, started at Thorrington Primary School and uh, there was a, a mother there. She used to wait for me outside the school gate in the mornings and then... Um, she would sort of yell out, child abuser, child molester, um, you know, your children aren't safe around this woman, da-da-da. And um, it was really traumatic. Anyway, within um, a few days, every time I pulled up in my car to take my daughter into school, um, these mums would come from nowhere <laughs> and just meet me walk me into school, talking to me, chatting, you know, holding my daughter's hand. I didn't even really know them that well. Um, it was just so nice, you know, it's like they picked up on what was happening. All these stories from the children, their families, and from Peter and all the other crash teachers, it just leaves you with a feeling of so much ongoing suffering so many years later. And trying not to prolong that pain is partly why so many chose not to be involved in this podcast. They just want to leave it all in the past. 
And for many who still believe Peter Ellis is guilty, they feel now public opinion has turned so much against them. Well, what's the point? You've got utterly, utterly, utterly complete distrust of the media now. There's no one, no one that would chance their arm, as you have found. This is Rose again, explaining why you've heard so little for so many years from the families of the alleged victims. Because of the weight of public opinion that was generated by the media at the time against them, on the few times a couple of people put their heads slightly above the parapet, um, and you cannot safely do it or author- do it with authority while maintaining anonymity. And, and the, you cannot not have anonymity because it's about people's rights to privacy, so uh, and protecting other people's rights, younger people's rights. So it's an absolute vexed, vexed thing that that's the way it has to be but it's obvious that it has to be that way and the media keeps forgetting to bring that up that families were silenced and always will be whatever you think about this case and i feel really strongly about this the children are blameless yeah it's a really important point and it's backed up by psychologist barry parsonson i feel sorry for the kids because i think to some extent you know i don't know whether anything happened or not but in looking at the stuff that went forward as evidence, I've, I've got a feeling that, you know, they were also victims. Victims of the inadequate interviewing process, victims of being put through that process over repeated times. And, you know, all the disruption that that caused in their lives and the, in the lives of their family. and I. I, I mean, I feel very sorry for them. And I, I don't think any blame can be put on them if indeed, you know, they made things up. Because the, the circumstances for making things up were created by the adult interviewers. And, you know, they were part of the hysteria. Obviously, families don't buy the idea of hysteria in created stories, but Rose likes to think the children aren't just blameless. She calls them brave and reckons we as a society have learnt something from them. I think we've got a an acceptance that it does happen and that eyes have to be open to it. I think we've got better safety standards in childcare. Um, so that's a good thing. And yeah, humans go on being humans, damaging each other and mucking things up. So who finally is to blame for it? Blame for what? For the whole... For this? The whole... Shimbang, no. Is the system, is the police, is it this combination of all of it, is it time and place, is it? It's probably not as easy. But. Uh, I think you have to, um, I think you have to say our government would be the answer to that. Um, a bureaucracy. Bottom line is, is that we don't learn and we and we don't see what's coming our way. So if I'm blaming anyone, I'm going to be blaming government and bureaucracy rather than, than individuals. I mean, if you like, it was a perfect firestorm, and um, but it needn't have been. 
The fuel for what Peter calls a perfect firestorm was the embracing of the satanic panic by media, by interest groups. It was the homophobia and the morality of the late 80s feeding people's perceptions. And it was the backlash to ignoring child sexual abuse for so long that suddenly it appeared to be everywhere. But the match that lit the fire was a simple statement from a preschooler who said, I don't like Peter's black penis. I often felt if I could only figure out where that comment came from, I could unravel this whole mess. They actually bought a black puppy off me, um, a young male black puppy. This is Peter during a 2020 interview with Melanie Reid. That was about the only thing I could come up with, that that possibly the the male puppy was at a certain age where male puppies start doing things and the child associated me and the black puppy's penis. I, I just literally can't come up with any answer for what a child's going on about a black penis. I mean, I'm Caucasian. There have been many other unsubstantiated ideas like this about where the black penis comment may have come from, such as Body Awareness Week at the creche or playing with black Play-Doh, rolling it out into a a penis-like shape. I've asked lots of people where this comment might have come from. The possible answer that resonated most with me, though, was described by a woman who wishes to remain anonymous. He made a comment to a staff member in the sandpit that the kid overheard and went home and said they were scared about his big black penis. Right? You know that? So you think that he must make made a joke? Mm, that's how it started. That's my. That's what I've always been told. That Peter was in the sand because we always had a big sandpit. So you know, you're you're playing with the kids in the sandpit. You're watching the kids. You're outside on, you know, making sure everyone's safe and all those things as you do when you're in early childhood. You're supervising, and he made a comment or told a story of his, what had happened on the weekend with him and his partner. He told someone, staff member, that his partner came home drunk and he took a black pen and he marked his penis while he was asleep and drinking passed out with the black marker. A kid overheard, went home, said, I'm scared of Peter's big black penis. That's where it started, is what I've been told. To me, this sounds very Peter-like. But just like all the other theories, no one could verify this story. I do believe, despite that all that has happened, that in the end justice must win. While Peter was in prison, two appeals had been dismissed and one request for pardon had been denied. In the years to come, two more requests for pardons would be denied and neither a ministerial inquiry nor a select committee inquiry would advance Peter's quest to have his convictions overturned. The most damaging to Peter was probably the ministerial inquiry and release of what became known as the Eichelbaum Report, named for the inquiry head Sir Thomas Eichelbaum. Critics said Eichelbaum was poorly advised and the inquiry was too narrow. For example, Eichelbaum and his experts only reviewed the interviews with the children whose evidence led to guilty verdicts. They didn't look at the dozens of other interviews. Eichelbaum found the interviews of the children were, quote, of good overall quality, close quote, that the contamination of the children's evidence was not significant and that Peter's appeals not only failed, but failed by, and I quote, a distinct margin. Justice Minister at the time, Phil Goff, announced Eichelbaum's findings at a press conference. The case advanced by Mr Ellis 
fails to meet the test identified earlier. It fails by a distinct margin. I have not found this anything like a borderline judgment. Yes, so here we go. It's um, the nubs and the twists, and I mean, only so much as I said. You can. That's twenty-seven. Twenty-seven years of my life. It's not. It's not a short time. No, it is not. It didn't get sorted though either. When we first met, he knew he was terminally ill. I remember him opening mail and being told how long he had to live. And I was there as he prepared for the end, sorting out his knickknacks. Isn't that cute? You see, I'm going to make sure the right people get these things. <laughs> Blowed if the wrong people are. And I've got a friend who's going to sell all the stuff. Uh, Sell all your possessions? Yeah. I just said to, I don't want them going to a second-hand shop or anything like that. In July 2019, Peter was granted the right to appeal to New Zealand's Supreme Court, the highest court in the land and really his last option. But late that same year, his health took a sharp turn and the pain just became too much. Peter was moved to a hospice in Christchurch. I saw him about three times there. Right. Uh, I didn't know it, but this would be the last time I would see him. See you, Peter. And Jade. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. On the 4th of September 2019, I got a text from Stephen. Hi, Alex. Peter passed away peacefully at 11.55. He was 61. Usually the Supreme Court would not consider a case once the appellant dies. An appeal can't continue without someone to instruct their lawyers, without someone who wants their reputation redeemed. It looked like the civic crash case was done. But then came a twist. Peter Ellis's fight to clear his name could still go ahead in the Supreme Court, even though he lost his battle with cancer yesterday. The Ministry of Justice says it's ultimately the court's decision on whether the appeal will be heard. The last chapter in the Peter Ellis story still to be written after his death. In 2020, an argument based on Māori tikanga or customary law was made. The Supreme Court agreed to consider taking the unprecedented step of letting the appeal continue even after the appellant's death. In a packed out courtroom and with a full lobby, the five justices heard how tikanga is relevant to the appeal of Peter Ellis. Natalie Coates, Peter Ellis's counsel, argued it was important for the case to proceed. Now you'll hear a lot of typing in the background, you know, they didn't shut down that mic. Mana and the importance of seeking to restore and uphold mana is something that transcends death. A hara or a wrong is before the court, and a door has been opened to seek to redress that. It's necessary for this case to continue, to get to a state of air or finality. But Una Jagos, on behalf of the Crown, argued that if the hearing went ahead, we still would not reach a conclusion. In my submission, that will forever leave this matter for the victims in a state of unbalance, and the hara that they have suffered will forever be left 
unattended, unprobed, because as a matter of fact, Mr Ellis cannot be retried. But the Supreme Court decided against the Crown. New Zealand legal history was made when the Supreme Court allowed former Christchurch civic crash worker Peter Ellis's appeal against charges of sexual offending to continue, despite the fact he died in September last year. It was a 3-2 split decision. The majority of the justices ruled that Peter Ellis's family had a strong interest in clearing his name and that the case raised broader system-wide issues worthy of their attention. Justice Susan Glacebrook was one of the three who voted to allow the hearing to proceed. The public interest factors in this case mean that it is in the interests of justice to allow the appeal to proceed. In their view, the grounds of appeal are strong and raise systemic issues. More than two years after Peter's death, the final legal battle to clear his name began. An historic appeal into sex abuse convictions for the former crash worker Peter Ellis has begun today in the country. Rob Harrison, Peter's first lawyer, was to present the case to the Supreme Court. I remember Peter telling me that he thought it was very funny, that the case had come full circle, that numerous others had worked on it over the years, but it ended up with Rob Harrison and that he would see it to a conclusion. Harrison's key arguments were around the reliability of the children's testimony. The first ground really looks at the complainant's testimony. The risk of contamination, we say that they were underestimated due to the absence of scientific knowledge at the time, and that improper techniques were used to obtain the evidence from the child complainants. Stating the Crown's case was John Billington. These are little children whose parents love them, need them and have to support them. It is unreal to suggest that that sort of conduct, as between parent and child, somehow is a factor that contaminates that evidence. Over the next two weeks, the five justices heard the defence and the Crown arguments and a range of experts giving evidence on children's memories, interview techniques and memory contamination. The court retired to consider its verdict and it was a full year later and three years after Peter's death on October the 7th, 2022, that the Supreme Court released its decision. Enoho, you may be seated. No Mikey the Koti Mananui. Welcome to the Supreme Court in the matter of... Peter Hugh, McGregor, Ellis and the King. The applications to reduce further evidence are granted. The appeal is allowed. The convictions of the appellant are quashed. The Supreme Court has quashed the convictions of Peter Ellis. Has quashed his convictions, calling them a substantial miscarriage. The substantial of miscarriage of justice resulted from the expert evidence given at the appellant's The trial. court found the evidence given by a specialist psychiatrist exceeded the proper bounds of an expert and witness. And that some of the children's evidence was contaminated by direct questioning from Given the, the extent of the inadmissible material, the significance of Dr Zellis's departure from appropriate standards and the impact of the evidence on the trial, the Section 23G evidence may well have affected the verdicts. Today's verdict marks the end of a 30-year battle by Alice to clear his name, a decision that came three years after his death. The release of this court's judgment marks the end of a long and painful journey through the courts. Outside the court, Rob Harrison had this to say about Peter and the case that had shaped his life. Look, he was an indomitable spirit, really, and um, despite being charged with this, despite being convicted of this, despite having to live with this for the best part of 30 years, uh, he didn't give up and he didn't back down from who he is or who he was, and, um, and he fought. 
Peter Staunch's supporter, his mother, passed away a month before the decision was released. But his remaining family and friends were relieved by the outcome. Here is his brother Mark. I wish my brother was here, because um, it was really what he deserved. Not, not for us to hear so much. It, yeah, him and mum who were the, the staunch party in the whole thing and um, always stood strong. Barry Doyle, who lived next door to Peter when he was a boy, was there for the verdict. The whole country has waited for the first sensible verdict that this case is known. And it's at the highest level and we're all grateful, all grateful. And so was Stephen. We've had celebration and joy, but this, the tinge of sadness is, is there and, and that's life. And that's the reality of what happens when injustice happens. It can't be undone, but his name is cleared, and for that we're grateful. This decision, of course, had implications not just for Peter, but for the children and their families too. And Justice Wynne Kelman and the Supreme Court were careful about casting any blame. This court's judgment is not to be read as a criticism of the parents, the complainants, or those involved in the investigation and trial. Our focus in this appeal was solely on conducting a careful analysis to evaluate whether a miscarriage of justice had occurred. The families released a statement on behalf of the complainants. Some are too afraid and traumatised still, but we as parents want to speak out and say loud and clear once again, we hear you and we believe you. The trauma of not being believed over the years takes its toll. The court of public opinion is often ill-informed and the facts are lost. Our children deserve to be safe in the care of adults. They were not. Executive producer Tim Watkins spoke about this to Rose, the aunt of one of those alleged victims and a lawyer herself. You and I started speaking before the Supreme Court ruled and you've often said the courts and the rulings speak for the families and the families didn't speak, they let the courts speak for them. Now the courts are saying something different. How hard is that for you, for the families now? For my own, it was pretty devastating for myself because I've got that legal background and I know how hard it is to get a conviction. I, Well, I don't accept the verdict, but um, I, I accept how it got to that because of the difficulty in ev evidential standard. I probably understand that better than other people involved. This outcome doesn't alter the fact of what happened to the children. The change of decision at the Supreme Court level um, doesn't alter the journey that families have been on. Legally, the Christchurch Civic Crash case has ended. There's nowhere to go beyond the Supreme Court, so the case after 30 years is closed. The convictions against Peter Ellis have been quashed. In death, he's no longer a convicted child abuser. But of course, the pain, the polarisation, the persistent questions, they all remain. Those who have lived with whatever happened back at the crash in the late 80s and early 90s live with it still. On both sides, the strong convictions haven't changed. When I set out to make this podcast, the hope I had was to give you a sense of how the case came to be, how it unfolded, the human cost, and then you could make up your own mind. And that's partly why Paula agreed to take part. I was just lying awake thinking, and I was thinking, I hope that these series of podcasts help people
people to understand more um, the social climate at the time and how this case took on a life of its own. I hope it helps um, people sort of recognise that things aren't always black and white, that, you know, sometimes you can get caught up in hysteria, but if you stop and you step back and you try and look at things objectively, you can see with a bit more clarity. And more than anything, I hope it keeps it alive as a piece of our history, New Zealand's history, so that it doesn't happen again, that we can learn from it. Hmm. Thanks for listening to Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash Case, hosted by Ellie Jones and Alexander Beezer. Conviction was made by Monsoon Pictures International, with support from RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The series was written and produced with help from Aliki Siantolis, Liz Garten and Tim Watkin. Blair Stagpole was the audio engineer. The voice actors in this episode are Blair Stagpole and Matthew Hutching. Thanks go out to RNZ's commissioning team, Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell, for giving this project the green light, and to Hingyi Kong for designing the webpage. And to Nataonga Sound and Vision for help with some of the archival audio, as well as MediaWorks Discovery, Getty Images, TVNZ, and the Livingston Family Trust. The key image for the series is courtesy of North and South. Conviction can be found on the podcast page of the RNZ website. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode. A big thanks also goes out to Lindley Hood, Melanie Reed, Martin Van Bainen, Alan Sampson, and Ross Francis for their persistent work over the decades. And to everyone who spoke on and off the record, from the colleagues at the creche, the academics, lawyers, creche staff, and families. In actual fact, anyone who assisted in whatever shape and form. And finally, special thanks to Peter's extended family, Stephen, Winston and Roger, John, Rob, Annie, Philippa and Jane. <laughs>